Welcome back to session three of Read Scripture Well. I'm Kevin McMillan, a pastor at Mile 2 Church, and hopefully you've caught the first two sessions in this series, and hopefully you've downloaded the notes as well, because they're very helpful in following along, and again, you've got some discussion questions or reflection questions that will help you work through some of this material. In our last session, we started looking at some hurdles, some difficulties that we might face when learning to interpret Scripture well. We talked about culture and how can that, that can sometimes get in the way of our understanding. Today, I want to talk about a couple of things. You might find these a little bit controversial. I want to talk about inerrancy, and I want to talk about literalism. These are very, very important, and uh, it's Im- I want you to get my heart on this because I, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression of what I'm trying to say. So let's talk about inerrancy. Inerrancy. Now, while we do believe that the Bible is without error, we do have to understand some details about the concept of inerrancy. What does that mean? Inerrant. That means there are no errors. I get that. But what exactly do you mean? Because there are, there's a broad range of understanding of what inerrancy means. I've read one article that had five different definitions and five significantly different understandings of what inerrancy meant. And so it might mean something to you, but if you talk about inerrancy with someone else, they might have a different understanding of what it means. But here's something we do need to consider when we think about inerrancy. And sometimes, I'm just gonna say this, the concept of inerrancy can get in the way of our understanding of scripture. Now, like I say, I believe the Bible is without error, but how we think about inerrancy can be a real problem sometimes. Tell you what I mean. Humans are imaginative, right? Humans are creative, and our language reveals part of that imaginative process. Language, as I said, is a human invention. Humans came up with it in the first place. I believe in many cases it's God-directed, but really humans came up with it, and we humans are developing our language year by year as we go along. And this shows imaginative, uh, our imaginative aspect. It shows our creativity. And in fact, the language itself shows great creativity and imagination. You see, a lot of our language consists of what we call figures of speech, and you're probably aware of this. And figures of speech is when you use words in such a way that you're actually meaning something different than the words you're using. And you might think, oh, no, 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 I'm not like that. I never talk like that. I've absolutely not. Well, you just used a figure of speech, actually, and it showed that you don't quite understand what I'm talking about here. So maybe if you want to go back to your high school and remember some of these figures of speech literary devices like a metaphor. Perhaps you remember what a metaphor is. It's saying something that means, well, something quite different, using different words. Here's an example. Guy's going for a job interview, and you say, yeah, he was going for the interview, but he got cold feet. Okay. He got cold feet? So, like, did he need boots? Like, did he need more socks? What's going on here? And, of course, what you're saying has nothing to do with his feet, and it has nothing to do with cold What you're just saying is, he chickened out. Chickened out. Chicken. Feathers? Um, Like roast? What chicken are you talking? Okay, not chicken. Um, How about this? He couldn't face the music. Okay, um, what music? Do you play at a job interview anyway? Of course, what we're using here is figures of speech. What you're saying is, he did not go. He became afraid, and because of his fear, he did not go to the job interview. But you're using words that have nothing to do with he didn't go, and yet everyone gets the impression because they understand the figure of speech. 
How about a simile? You remember your similes? Uh, a comparison using like or as? One of my similes that I tend to use a lot is he's happy as a clam. Well, do you want, like, do you need to know exactly how happy a clam is? I personally don't know. I've never asked a clam. I'm sort of just assuming they are. But the point is, I don't really care how happy a clam is. That's just a figure of speech, and we all understand it. I, you know, I feel sorry for people who try to learn English as a second or third language because we're crazy in some of the things we say. How about personification? Do you remember this? This is uh, giving an object or animal human characteristics, something like this. As his horse galloped along the hard sand, the wind sang in his ears. Well, you understand what's happening, but, you know, the wind doesn't sing. The wind is moving air. But this is a, a, a creative, literary, poetic phrase, right? And so it, it's, it's not exactly, the words don't mean what they're saying, but you get exactly what's going on here. How about hyperbole? This is making an overstatement, making an exaggeration, but you do it to create emphasis. You say something like, oh gosh, I have a million things to do today. A million? Like, you're sure it's not like a million and eight? Is it not 999,000? That's not the point. And in fact, you can't do a million things in one day. What you're saying is, I have a whole lot to do today and I feel somewhat overwhelmed. And people understand that. When you use these words, it's not that you're creating difficulties. It's just every, you, you have to understand within the culture what these figures of speech mean. So earlier when I said, oh, I never use figures of speech, well, yeah, you just used hyperbole because I expect you have used figures of speech somewhere along. How about sarcasm? This is, of course, use, using a words or a phrase that means the exact opposite of what you mean. Something like, oh, that's all I need. But if you read those words on the page, that's all I need. Well, those two mean exactly the opposite. And you have to, again, take into account not just what do the words say, but what do the words mean? And this is so important when we read Scripture, because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was written by human beings. And you know what? There are figures of speech in Scripture, both just in recording people talking. Of course, people would use figures of speech. Jesus used figures of speech. But then also just in the narrative, in the, in the writing of what was going on, figures of speech are used, and we need to be able to identify that. You may remember also from high school about poetry. Poetry. To some people, poetry is just sort of this <laughs> magical, incomprehensible form of writing. Why do people do this? But it's beautiful. It's beautifully creative, beautifully expressive. And very often in poetry, you can read the words that are on the page, and you can understand those words but you know that there's actually some hidden meaning, a meaning underneath the words, a meaning behind the words. And as a reader, you, need, you want to determine, okay, what does the author really mean by this? You know, we have to do the same thing with Scripture as well, because here's the point. A good, in, this, in this case specifically, a good portion of Scripture is poetry. And if we read it, just taking it face value of what it says, we're probably going to miss the point sometimes. We need to look for the meaning behind the words. Here's the truth. Much of our language is not to be taken literally. When we're talking to one another, we would get into real problems if we took everything exactly literally. Now, 
we're looking back 2,000 years, sometimes 3,000 years, 3,500 years in the writing here. And we have to understand something else as well. Over time, and as culture changes, people view writing, they view information differently. And the ancient writers, many of them wrote with a different frame of mind than you have or that I have. And so a lot of ancient writing is not concerned with perfect accuracy of detail. Now, you might find this difficult and frustrating, but this is the truth. A lot of ancient writers, their, their consideration was not to give you a perfect, detailed account of everything that happened exactly the way it happened. They were trying to get across a message. They were wanting to get something to you more than just simple information. And see, this is different than the way we often read and write today, and we have to recognize that. Here's an example. In the Gospels, four Gospels, we have the account of Jesus' life, but each of them has a ever so slightly different uh, chronological order of the way things that are presented. Mark might present it in a certain order, <clears throat> Luke might present some things in a slightly different order, and Matthew might present them in a slightly different order, but it looks in each one as if this is the order that it happened. Now, with our thinking, it has to be just this way, and this is the way it, we, you know, it, it starts here and it goes there. It's very linear, the way we think is linear, and we think anything out of order, it's wrong. There must be an error here. But here's the point. We're actually reading it erroneously. We're reading it wrong if we look that way, because their point was not to create a chronologically perfect account of Jesus' life. Matthew, in fact, grouped his teachings together in clumps in his Gospels, whereas Luke and Mark kind of interspersed them more. And so, just by that fact, of course, things are going to be in slightly different order. But Mark, Matthew was coming at it with a slightly different purpose. He wanted to focus on teachings and focus on subjects and themes, whereas Luke maybe wanted to focus on Jesus' interaction with people. And so, it's not that one is wrong or one is right. They just have different uh, purposes, different end games. And so, our end game sometimes is, has to be exactly right, has to be precisely perfect, and if it's not, then it's wrong. They didn't think that way. And so we have to take that into account when we're reading. Now, you might find it frustrating, but we still have to take it into account. Uh, it, it simply wasn't a point for them. Here's another thing in scriptures, <clears throat> excuse me, just like in everyday life, sometimes numbers get rounded. Like, do you ever talk to someone and, uh, you know, 4,000 people did such and such. Well, was it exactly 4,000 or do we know? Well, that's not the point. You're trying to get, you're, you're trying to get a, an impression across, like essentially some information, but that accuracy is not important. It's actually not the point. Well, this happens in scriptures too. Here's an example. Second um, Chronicles 4, verse 2. If you have scriptures, you can, your Bible handy. Second Chronicles 4, verse 2. This is when... Uh, they were building the temple. Solomon was building the temple, and they were creating all of the elements that went into the Holy of Holies and the various different rooms in the temple. And one of the things they created was this enormous basin filled with water, and they called it the sea. And let me read what it says here. This is Second uh, Chronicles 4, verse 2. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim, five cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Okay, well, let's read that. 10 cubits from rim to rim, 30 cubits around it. 
Do you remember from high school <clears throat> the formula for the circumference of a circle relative to its diameter? Well, it's 2 pi r, right? So pi d. So the diameter times pi. Well, here it says it's 10 cubits wide and 30 cubits around. Well, pi is not 3, is it? Pi is 3.14159265358, or something like that. And so 30 isn't exactly right if 10 is right, or 10 isn't exactly right if 30 is right. And we can look at that and think, oh, gee, it's an error. But if we do that, we're actually missing the point of the scripture. We are, in fact, the ones creating the error. Their point was not to give us all of the details of the dimensions. They were saying it was this wide, and it was this deep, and it was this far around. So sometimes we get kind of hung up on those things. Here's another example. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, Paul is talking about the things that happened that are recorded in the Old Testament so that we can learn from them. And uh, he says this in verse 8, talking about some of the... Um, tragedies that happened in the Old Testament. It says, verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. 23,000 of them died. Well, if, you're, if you are absolutely set on detail, the question is, was it exactly 23,000, or maybe was it 23,007, or 22,987? We, you know, but if we do that, we are missing the point. And in fact, I'll say it again, we're the ones making the error. And if you want to compound that a little bit, if you look back in the Old Testament and find out what is Paul referring to when he talks about these 20, 23,000 people dying, back in Numbers 25 verse 9, it says that 24,000 people died. So that helps us see he's not just trying to give us an exact number. He's giving the impression a whole lot of people died as the result of this. And so you need to avoid it. Because if you get so hung up on ones and twos and threes and dozens, uh, you might miss the whole point of sexual immorality being really, really important to God. Because that's a lot more important than one or two or three. So... I, I hope you understand where we're going here, because in everyday language, when we're, when we're talking, we don't consider these things errors. We take them into account when we're speaking, and we need to take these things into account when we're reading our Scripture as well. You see, part of our cultural tendency is to read through rationalistic eyes. This is the result of the Enlightenment that happened in the 1700s and extended into the 1800s and has affected the way we think about almost everything in Western culture today. Rationalism came to the fore where you had to be, a, you had to be able to explain everything rationally. Everything had to work out just exactly right and exactly perfectly. And so uh, the concept of inerrancy really came to the fore in the 1800s as an explanation against Enlightenment thinking, against rationalism. But the problem was it was using a rationalistic mindset to combat rationalism. And it now you're trying to reduce the Scripture to some rationalistic reading or some rationalistic writing, which it is not. As I said in one of our previous episodes, God is not a product of our culture. God is not a product of our philosophy, and the Word of God is not either. And so we have to understand 
Sometimes when we read things, we have enlightenment thinking. And if we try to impose that on scriptures, we're going to find that a little bit difficult. Now, I say this, though. This should not diminish our trust in the Bible, not a bit. Uh, Rather, it should help us read it better. And in fact, I believe it helps establish our trust in the Bible, knowing that some of these details aren't really the issue, but it helps us see what the real issues are, and it helps us understand it and therefore apply it to our lives. So, that's just a little bit about inerrancy. And related to inerrancy is what we call literalism. Literalism. Now, Christians, Orthodox Christians, Evangelical Christians in particular, want to read the Bible literally. And I've heard so many say, I want to read it literally. I just want to get it as literally as I can possibly get it. And I understand what they're saying. The problem is they're not using the word literally, literally, because they don't necessarily know what the word literal means. We have to understand, what does this mean, literal? Literal reading is understanding words by their most basic meaning with no interpretation or understanding of metaphor or allegory. In other words, like we said earlier, he went for a job interview, but he got cold feet. Literalism would go, he got cold feet. That's terrible. How did that happen? Was it snowing and he didn't have the right kind of boots on? Well, that's, that's, that's literalism in action. Okay? Now, I, my experience is this. I, I can't say that I've heard this from anyone uh, in the know, but my experience with Christians in particular, but with lots of other people as well, is that people, a lot of people use the word literal or literally, and what they mean is really, seriously, literally this happened. And I've heard someone, you know, say things like, man, when I heard that, I was literally blown away. Really? Like literally blown away? Like, you look in one piece to me. And the f- they're, they're showing that they don't understand what literal means. Because when you understand what literal means, you wouldn't use it in that particular phrase. Now, here's the truth. Just like all of language, which we talked about all the figures of speech that we use, much language is not to be taken literally, although a good deal of it is. Some of it isn't. Get ready for this. Brace yourselves. Scripture is the same way. While most of Scripture should be and must be taken literally, some of it should not be taken literally. Because if we take it literally, we will completely misunderstand it. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus in Mark 8, 34 is recorded as saying this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross. Take up their cross. What's a cross? Okay, let's look back at the culture, Middle Eastern culture, Roman culture, right around 1 AD, 30 AD, somewhere around there. What's a cross? Okay, it's this big wooden thing with two pieces of wood. They're huge, and and that's what it is. And so Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross. And so if you read this literally, you will think, okay, if I get a big hunk of wood and I put a cross piece on it, and I hang it on my shoulders and I walk around like this, I'm following Jesus. Isn't this awesome? I'm Jesus' disciple simply because I have a big wooden cross on my shoulder. That's if you read it literally. Is that correct? <laughs> no, that's, that's quite incorrect as a matter of fact. Now, I know some people do that. that. That's fine. That's their business. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. 
at that time, like we said, a cross was a, you know two big hunks of wood nailed together. But what was the purpose of a cross? It was an instrument of execution. It was an instrument of death. What Jesus was saying is, if you want to be my disciple, you need to be willing to lay down your life and follow me. That's way harder than carrying a wooden cross around. But that's what Jesus, more or less, was getting at. So if we read it literally, we will actually misunderstand it. Here's another one that hopefully you'll find interesting. Song of Solomon. You know, Song of Solomon is a song between lovers, two young people, young woman, young man. Evidently, he's very handsome and evidently she is very beautiful. At least they sure are to one another. Young married couple here. And it is a song about their love, their romantic love, and let's face it, their sexual love. While it doesn't get graphic in, in one sense sexually, wow, when you read it, it's figurative speech, but you know exactly what they're talking about. And that's what it is. It's a love song. And yes, you can apply it to God's love to us for sure, but it was written as a love song. Now, in chapter 5, there's a passage here where the young woman is in bed by herself, and she hears her lover outside, and he's knocking on the door. Okay, well, what happens? Okay, so she's anticipating something here. Here's what it says in verse 4. My lover tried to unlatch the door, and my heart thrilled within me. Okay, she's anticipating meeting him. Or another translation said, my heart began to pound for him. And perhaps you know exactly what she's talking about. Or my heart yearned for him. Oh, he's there. Oh, he's there. I can hardly wait. And this is, this is the way lovers are, and it's beautiful. You know, but if you read the literal Hebrew, she said this, my bowels were moved for him. Oh, well, you know, that's not quite as romantic if you, if you think of it that way. But this is, that, that was the literal Hebrew, but of course, that's not what she meant at all, and that's not what the Hebrew means, but that is the literal rendering of it. So, wanting to take things literally, we have to be careful. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. What you want to do is find the meaning behind the text, not just what the text says, exegesis, but what it means. And sometimes that takes some hermeneutics, some uh, interpretation as well. I've heard some pastors say that they believe the Bible literally says that the United States will be attacked by your reunited Roman Empire. Literally, the Bible says that. Now, if you read Scripture and you can interpret from Scripture that, okay, I see the United States in Scripture and I see your reunited Roman Empire, I see them coming together in a battle, that's one thing. But don't say it's literally because the United States, the word United States, the phrase does not show up in Scripture, so it cannot literally say the United States. And I know this sounds silly, but you know, it's silly to say that the Scriptures literally say this or that when they literally don't. Okay, so we need to understand the difference between what it literally says and what we can interpret. So, we need to be careful about our understanding of what literal means. Much of our scripture needs to be taken literally, but much of it we also have to do some interpretation as well. As I say, rather than just looking at what the text says, let's look behind it and make sure that we can get an understanding of what it means. So, thanks for joining me for this one. Hopefully, you'll join us for the fourth session where we're going to be talking about genre. Thanks very much.